on today's episode of The Mythic Masculine. Everybody grows up with a mother. At least that's the usual uh, route. Uh, it's even more so in Western culture where it's not a big extended family that raises the kid, but principally the mother. So the female becomes a tremendously important figure psychologically. And a lot of Western psychology is trying to break away from the mother, which leads to you know, denigrating the feminine in general. But the uh, that's also a result of war, war culture, that if you look at historically, indigenous peoples, you know, hunter-gatherers especially, uh, men and women were equal. Uh, the men usually brought back meat, uh, which was the high prestige food, but the women brought back most of the calories because they would, you know, regularly find fruit, tubers, vegetables, and uh, game was pretty iffy. So men got the valued stuff, but women kept everybody alive. What does it mean to be a man today? The toxic patterns of masculinity are being challenged, and new pathways are just beginning to rise. In the era of Me Too and biospheric uncertainty, how might we look to the old mythologies for guidance to navigate this space between stories? This podcast explores the historical, cultural, and contemporary voices that are shaping this dynamic conversation of the emerging masculinities. Greetings, dear listener. I'm your host, Ian McKenzie. My guest today is Alan B. Chinnan, a psychiatrist in private practice in San Francisco and clinical professor of psychiatry at the University of California. He has lectured extensively and presented numerous workshops on the role of myths, fairy tales, and legends around life's transitions. He is the author of numerous books, including In the Ever After, Fairy Tales in the Second Half of Life, and Beyond the Hero, Classic Stories of Men in Search of Soul. In our conversation today, we explore the relationship between the hero and the patriarch, and men's initial fear and fascination with the feminine. We unpack the tales that may guide men's roles at midlife, after the hero has come home. And finally, we reach further back in time before civilization, wherein lies the deep masculine wisdom of the trickster. Before we begin, a reminder to check out my new offering titled Beyond the Podcast. This is a bi-weekly live series over Zoom that follows each new episode, where I will share further on the themes and ideas we have explored. When possible, I will also invite the guest on the show to answer your questions. Beyond the Podcast is available to podcast supporters and all members of the Mythic Masculine Network. Visit themythicmasculine.com to learn more. And now, enjoy my conversation with Alan Chinnett. Welcome, Alan, to the show. I'm glad to be here. I'd love to begin by asking my guests to share a little bit of uh, where they are in this moment. So the listener has a chance to, to just land with them, you know, spiritually, geographically, anything that feels called to be shared. Well, I'm in San Francisco at the western edge of the <laughs> North American continent. Um, and it's finally turning sunny. The marine fog is leaving. Uh, feeling fairly good because I got my second vaccination a few days ago, so I'm feeling safe. And um, the city has moved to a lower uh, tier, so uh, museums and all sorts of things are opening up, which is really a relief because it's been kind of a ghost town. <laughs> how many or how long have you lived in the city? 
I think almost 40 years. Uh, although I uh, grew up in the deep south, Hawaii. <laughs> Nobody thinks of it as a southernmost state, but it actually is. Would you share what, what was the transition for you then? Like when did you feel a call to come to the Bay or was there a journey involved in your, you know, sort of from that growing up, becoming an adult and then heading to the mainland? Or how was that for you? I was going to college that came here to college and just stayed and stayed and stayed. It's kind of strange. You think of Hawaii as having great weather, but I thought it was too hot. <laughs> and San Francisco is quite cool most of the time. Well, I'd love to situate the listener a little bit why I am very excited about our conversation today. I will say that, you know, my, myself and my own journeys exploring the mythic masculine um, certainly was ignited by finding, you know, books like Iron John and the rest that in many ways, you know, when I started to track the threads back to the, the sort of origin times, um, I found, of course, Iron John, I think, came out in sort of early 90s. Uh, and then a number of other books, you know, Michael Mead, that whole crew, James Hillman, you know, and, the, and I sort of began talking with men who had been around that time. And it was really incredible, actually, to hear stories and, you know, what was sort of, you know, landed, what, like what culturally, what was the moment and what was the moment for them personally. And I will say that the journey through that um, also left me kind of like curious, you know, like, what is it to go beyond the hero? You know, I literally had had that kind of thought. And so when a listener, I believe, sent me an image of your book, it was like, oh, you might want to check this out. You know, I was like, oh, boom, there it is, Beyond the Hero. And, uh, and when I went and read it, of course, I was really blown away by the level of, you know, what you brought. And so uh, my question for you first is, could you share a little bit about your relationship to that sort of first mythopoetic wave? Uh, you know, what, what was, what were you, where were you in your life at the time? And, and like, what was, what drew you to that movement? Hmm. I uh, was actually always interested in myth and archetypes of Jungian thinking, um, but I essentially got tricked into this work. <laughs> uh, it started in medical school where first dealing with stress, I started meditating and then got these really mythic archetypal visions that were endings of fairy tales, I realized. And <clears throat> they all featured adults, so I never came across fairy tales about adults. They're usually about children or youth. So I thought I'd write the fairy tales out and see what what got these characters to that end. Then I thought, well, I never came across fairy tales about full-grown adults, so I must have invented something. I must be a genius. <laughs> so I thought, I'll get it published uh, and then see what where that goes. Well, 20 publishers later, I thought, oh, uh, plan B. There must be folk tales like this with adults, so I'll go look at that and see what they are. And then I found out, oh my God, these are the diamonds. I had glass beads because... Uh, folktales really are quite condensed and generally you can tell uh, if it's been you know like Hans Christian Andersen wrote fairy tales you can usually tell when they're written by somebody as opposed to be transmitted over generations would you share a little bit about that yeah how do you how do you know the difference or what what do you what it's a telltale sign uh, folk tales are really condensed, so they don't have, uh, it's not like a novel, which is what we tend to do when we make stories these days. So they throw out most of the unessential things. Uh, it's kind of like, uh, uh, I suppose it's like perfume. You get 10,000 rose petals and it comes down to one drop. Oh, and then as I was looking at the folk tales, I noticed the stuff I had about mature men were completely different from Prince Charming uh, and the gallant hero. So I just started collecting them and looking at them and finding astonishing parallels from around the world. Then I got really excited. 
And what was it for you reading Iron John first? I mean, I understand uh, Bly uh, had some involvement with the manuscript, or maybe he looked it over, gave you yes. notes. Yeah, yes. and I'd love to hear uh-huh. your relationship with him and you know how that came about. Well, I met him at uh, uh, men's uh, ga- week. Uh, it was a week, I guess, in Mendocino, and then also at a conference before that. Um, some a friend of mine had told him some stories or given him uh, uh, the Beyond the Hero book, <clears throat> so he knew a little bit about it. And did you, so you had written it sort of in the aftermath of reading Iron John, or it had been something you'd already been collecting before even that came about? I'd already been collecting, because Iron John is uh, kind of a hybrid. It's really about a young man, and then the older man is sort of the secondary figure. And that's the typical story about a youth. The older person is the secondary figure, as opposed to being the main character. Mm-hmm. Uh, so stories about a, a men's tale would be how Iron John got to be in his situation. Well, this is interesting to me because, you know, when I read Iron John, I was, I think, around 35, which, you know, it seems to be actually a kind of time when there's a certain receptivity, you know, to these kinds of things. And for me, you know, a lot of what my life had been, you know, I had been married, um, sort of had the picket fence, and that crumbled, you know, for different reasons. And, um, you know, I read in Iron John as well, Bly talks about how it's around that time when men sort of are willing to kind of look beyond, you know, their own sort of heroic idealism, you know, about their lives and the rest. And so it it sort of matched that chronology. And at the same time, you know, I'm curious for you, what is it that uh, drew you to recognize or to characterize perhaps stories like Iron John, you know, as a kind of uh, heroic, you know, sort of youthful heroic structure versus what you became to understand more as like mature men's tales. Like I'd love for you to differentiate between those tales that seemed aimed at, um, you know, in your book, you say a kind of hero patriarch paradigm. And then how does that differ from the stories that you began finding, which you would call more mature men's tales? Well, the, the hero stories, the young hero stories about actually could be women too. It's not just men, although it's mostly men in existing folk tales. Uh, the, the aim is for the hero to go on a quest and achieve something great. It, Joseph Campbell really covered that well. Um, the story for men at midlife usually is the opposite. They suffer some horrible thing. My king might be thrown down and imprisoned or some disaster happens. They're, you know, discharged from the army after 30 years of service to nothing. And that's the beginning of the journey where they find what comes after the hero. The hero and the patriarch are connected in the sense that the patriarch needs a hero to enforce his laws, and the hero wants to become the patriarch. But what's interesting is that the stories about mature men reach further back historically, uh, not to the hero and the patriarch, because they're actually only from agricultural periods, uh, what, at the most 8,000 years ago. And the, the figure that comes up for post-heroic stuff is actually the trickster, who's the uh, original male image that you see in you know prehistoric caves from thirty thousand years ago. Hmm. They're always uh, they're never uh, shown as people; they're always masked or disguised. Um, but I do have to clarify hmm. the trickster. The original trickster is not what we think of the trickster today as you know, like the con man, because uh, that's probably. Uh, result of um, Christianity, whatever the Romans had, they did the reverse. So they had a bunch of tricksters. uh, And so that trickster was bad. (laughs) But in original uh, 
ancient lore, like Native American or many African tribes, the trickster is actually second in importance to the creator and is sent by the creator to make the way safe for humankind. Uh, so he goes around killing monsters and stuff, and then he starts to uh, have affairs, steal things, and do all sorts of bad things. And then, oh my god, I forgot my mission. I was thought uh, that was a very good message for men at midlife. <laughs> Well, I really appreciate where you you take us, you know, in the book, and I'd love to spend a lot of time there uh, as we journey towards it. And as sort of laying the groundwork first as well, I'd love to ask first too, what, how did the stories come to you in the sense of how did you know to put them in the book? Like, did you have a sort of revelatory moment? Was it just, you just knew sort of intuitively, oh, this story, you know, this story, or was there some other sort of thread that you started to piece together as you assembled the stories? Mm. Uh, well, I collected them uh, through a very clever uh, research means. I read through thousands of fairy tale and folklore books and just picked out the ones that are about adults. Uh, and as I read them, I could put them in categories or little piles on, of paper on the floor of the themes, and they were similar from across many different cultures. Uh, so that's what first clued me into oh, there is something here. It's not just one culture. Could you offer just a breadth uh, or an overview of, of some of the stories, if you you know recalled some of the ones you included? So um, not at length, but just enough that the listener gets a sense of what kind of stories you know you included. Oh, okay. Uh, one is actually in the Grimm's collection. It's actually one of my favorite stories, but it's one of the really lesser known ones. And it's a story about a soldier who spends 20 years of his life serving the king. And then the king signs a peace treaty and then fires all the soldiers. So he's basically abandoned with a loaf of bread and four pennies. Uh, and then the stories about his journeys, he happens to meet St. Peter, who basically plays the part of a trickster on playing tricks on the poor soldier, uh, and gradually gets him away from the hero-soldier thing to become a trickster. Uh, apparently, uh, St. Peter was a trickster, uh, if you look back more closely. He wasn't the patriarch. And essentially, uh, the St. Peter initiates this soldier into becoming a trickster. So in true trickster style, he tricks himself into heaven. Is that the Brother Lustig story? Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah yes. I love that uh, one too. Yes. You know, my question too on this um, journey that you've identified as well, you know, I will say I, I was um, really appreciative of how you characterized in some ways the, the first shift that men may make as they step into more mature years, that there were certain qualities that you spoke to, right? And some of these might be familiar to men, you know, doing the men's work now, right? Which, for example, often involves uh, a lot of emotional, you know, resensitivity and and sort of capability. And I, I would love for you to speak a little bit more about, you know, again, what do you see as these sort of maybe foundational uh, practices or skills that men must make or tend to make, you know, as they step sort of away out of the sort of heroic ideal and into a more, you know, mature uh, capacity. Oh, uh, I think one is taking the risk to do something that seems silly or that's unconventional and it'd be able to wander around and not have a single goal like the hero does because uh, that then opens up everything. It, unexpected can happen. And the other thing is if you don't do that, then bad stuff happens to make you open up. <laughs> well, I'm reminded of, uh, in, you know, of course, in Iron John, he uses that term katabasis. Yes, uh, which sort of tends to mean the descent or yes. the road of road of ashes, and you know, again, I, I hear that reflected in a lot of men that I speak to, and often around you know thirty, thirty five, as I did that that 
you know, again, as, as life as it was crumbled, there was this sense of almost needing to, yeah, wander, not without purpose in a sense of without curiosity or sort of in depression, although certainly, you know, grief is a big part of that. But to have, like you say, a kind of openness to, um, to maybe new possibilities that maybe had been suppressed or, or hidden away or, or, or put in the shadow. Yes, exactly. Uh, I guess the image I like to think of is uh, men are often stuck in a hero statue and they need to break out. And that requires smashing through some of the uh, whatever marble or bronze and finding who they really are. How was that reflected in perhaps your journey as well? Did you find that this was, you know, based on your own, you know, attempts to try to figure out, you know, what does it mean to be to be a man or to be masculine in this culture in this moment? Oh, yes. Um, well, I was following, um, during residency as a psychiatrist in training, uh, I was following kind of an academic path. And so I was hooked up with some researchers. We had a big grant that was approved, uh, had giving up to get it going in the research center. And then Ronald Reagan came in and canceled all research centers. <laughs> so I thought, oh, so much for that idea. The king just discharged me with nothing. Uh, so I felt like, well, that was the beginning of wandering. And then I thought, well, uh, I was lucky enough to have a research fellowship that was unrestricted. So I thought, oh, well, I'll show them. I'll use this money to look at fairy tales. <laughs> the complete opposite of what you'd expect. <laughs> wow. What was the reception of the book when it was published? How did you, you know, what was the general sort of receptivity to the to the book and the tales in the moment? Oh, um, some people really liked it. Some men really uh, resonated with it, um, but it didn't have a big uh, sales or readership. I think it was first of all kind of heavily Jungian. Do you find that the like the the Jungian slant you're saying was sort of um, made it less accessible to people or? Because it feels like it was coming on the heels of Iron John, right? It came out, I, I believe, in 93. And I think Iron John was maybe 91 or something. And so in some sense, you know, yeah, in some sense, I would have felt that the the audience would have been very receptive of sort of like, what's next? Um, but at the same time, perhaps maybe the cultural moment actually wasn't ripe for stories, you know, beyond the hero yet. Um, I think that's probably true. Even now, uh, there's kind of a deficit. Uh, there are a lot of heroic women in TV and movies now, but not many post-heroic men. And I think that Iron Giant really prepared the way that, oh, there's an alternative to the superhero. Because uh, Joseph Campbell had really popularized the hero archetype. So it was like, oh, is that the only masculine archetype there is? You've used this phrase now, yeah, post-heroic as well. And would you share a little bit too on, on that? I know you mentioned the trickster, but like, what is the sort of qualities that make uh, a model post-heroic? It comes not just from fairy tales, but actually if you look at lots of uh, indigenous tri uh, cultures or you know tribal situation, older men generally leave the warrior role and become the elders. Then they have their secret lodge where only the men, older men go. Uh, and that's something that we're missing now because the gatherings of older men here are the power the people with the power rather than mm. the elders because the uh, secret lodges were explicitly for not for the chiefs the people who ran the tribe what type of work would be done in these kinds of lodges based on your understanding um well i think part of it would be uh kind of like the uh, reports from the bohemian grove sort of revelry and kind of silly things uh or you're not supposed to talk business uh, but also one of their major tasks of course was to organize the initiations of the adolescents 
and and also of middle-aged men that needed to move beyond their power role. And would you say that the the absence of these kinds of initiation rites and even the older men, you know, with enough sort of the, their own self-awareness and capacity to pull them off is uh, a, one of the symptoms that we are in a paradigm which essentially, you know, is the patriarch, the patriarchs that refuse to abdicate their positions of power. I think that's a real big problem because um, we all talk about you know, uh, people getting addicted to this or that drug. The most addictive substance is power. And once you get it, you always want more, more money. I mean, you have a billion dollars. Oh, I think I need another billion. <laughs> I mean, I'm really curious to even unpack that a little more. Like, what would you say, you know, what what was the role of, for example, stories or culture in sort of mitigating that seductive tendency? Well, uh, folk tales are, by definition, told in informal groups outside of the official government or church or uh, society. So uh, you can bring up anything you want that comes to mind. Uh, and if somebody gets offended, you, oh, what are you getting upset? It's just a fairy tale. Uh, but it's interesting that that's where all the post-heroic stuff comes up. Uh, often women are the storytellers, and they can say whatever they want when they're together away from the governing patriarch. Uh, so it's kind of like dreams bringing up what you don't deal with. Folk tales bring that up. Um, unless it's been censored by powerful religious and uh, political forces. Would you share one of the tales, too, that might come to you now? I mean, uh, not exhaustively, you know, I know some of them are quite long, but, I mean, is there one, you know, that you still find that you're, you know, it's still got to you, you know, it's still got you even these years later? Yeah, I think a good one is a, a short one, The North Wind's Gift. Uh, it's an Italian story about a peasant who is finally tired of being oppressed by his uh, landlord, who actually was, a, um, I guess, a priest or uh, some a monsignor, slightly above a priest. Uh, so he, he gets mad and then goes off to see the North Wind, asking him, why does he, you know, freeze all his crops and keep them poor? And the North Wind gives him a series of gifts, uh, a box uh, that when you open it, it gives creates servants that appear and set the table for food. Um, oops, and I forgot the other two. Uh, I think was, one was the, the men that jump out of the box and beat up whoever's yes, that's in right. the room. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and there was something in between. Well, anyway, he uh, managed to lose it to his landlord, the priest, who said, oh, you know, uh, if you don't give me, I heard you went on a trip and came back with something, so give it to me, otherwise... You know, you'll be out on your um, butt. So he loses the first one that gives you all this food you want and then th goes back to the North Wind and asks again. And North Wind is kind of mad, but gives him a second gift. And he loses that one. Uh, so it goes back a third time. And North Wind is really mad and gives him the box where people come out, jump out and, and beat everybody around them. And the North Wind uh, gives you know, advice of use these gifts as is appropriate. Uh, so basically, he tells the uh, landlord, oh, uh, I have an even better gift than the first box you had. Uh, so he gives it to, pretends to resist, gives it to the uh, priest, uh, thinks, oh, this would be even better. So when the bishop is coming to visit, <laughs> uh, he says, you have to wait for this wonderful feast we're having. And of course, surprise, when he opens the box, it's not a beautiful feast, but uh, these thugs appear and beat everybody up, including the bishop and all his retinue. Uh, so he gives the 
the the landlord priest gives the the peasant, uh, oh, you can have the land; it's yours, and also the other gifts that you gave me. So he and his wife live, and his kids live happily ever after. Um, it's a it's a hilarious story, but it's also quite unexpected because uh, they do make fun of the um, the bishop and the priest and the landlords. And what else sticks for you in terms of uh, maybe invoking a kind of uh, skillfulness or, or trickster nature, you know, within that story to sort of, you know, deal with power dynamics or, you know, situation uh, that, that allows for them to, or the peasant in this case, to, you know, come out on top, protect his family, whatever it is. Um, yeah. The crucial thing is that he knows to clo- how to close the box so that the thugs disappear because uh, you could release them and then try to be king of the world, but um, that probably won't go well. Uh, so he has to learn to release the thugs, but also to shut them up. Mm. You identify the role of the spirit brother as actually mm. quite important yes, you yes. Know, in, in these stories. And so I wonder what you, if you might just say a few words too about what is the spirit brother and the function in these stories. It's, I was really kind of amazed that this theme appeared in stories around the world in different cultures. Uh, like in the Brother Lustig, we talked about uh, St. Peter is a spirit brother. Um, and in the North Wind's gift, it's North, North Wind itself. And it's usually, well, it, the archetype of a spirit would be the wind. Uh, so that fits doubly. And it's the uh, spirit brother who accompanies the man as he's trying to get out of the ruins of the hero that he's leaving behind. Now, a good example would be uh, Dante's uh, Divine Comedy, where his initial guide is actually Virgil, um, guides him through purgatory and hell. And only when he gets to paradise, because he was a heathen, he can't go there, uh, that does a woman take over uh, Beatrice, was it? Or... Hmm. Anyway, uh, but that's an example of a spirit brother appearing in a very, very Catholic conventional um, epic. Well, turning now to the feminine again, you know, you brought up a kind of uh, progression, which I thought was really intriguing that, you know, if men start in a uh, heroic paradigm um, in, in a, in this sort of adolescent masculinity, that there's this shift into, like we spoke about already, um, a kind of receptivity or emotional, the emotional realm, which is often relegated to the feminine, that, you know, men have to come back into that relationship and that emotional labor and all the rest. And you had this great line, though, it said something like, they have to come to terms with their fascination and fear of the feminine. And, you know, I'd just love for you to speak a little bit more about that. About that. Well, there is that, the fascination, of course, is understandable, but also the fear, because uh, Everybody grows up with a mother, mother, or at least that's the usual uh, route. Uh, it's even more so in Western culture where it's not a big extended family that raises the kid, but principally the mother. So the female becomes a tremendously important figure psychologically. And a lot of Western psychology is trying to break away from the mother, <clears throat> which leads to you know, denigrating the feminine in general. But the uh, that's also a result of war, war culture. That if you look at historically, um, indigenous peoples, you know, hunter gatherers, especially, uh, men and women were equal. Uh, the men usually brought back meat, uh, which was the high prestige food, but the women brought back most of the calories because they would, you know, regularly find um, fruit, tubers, vegetables, and uh, game was pretty iffy. So. Men got the good stuff, 
or valued stuff, but women kept everybody alive. And so it's trying to get back to that more egalitarian state. You mentioned the challenge that uh, men often face psychologically. Of you know what I've heard is the sort of leaving the house of the mother, mm. or yes. the, this almost the psychological safety that is provided by a mother. And to be honest, you know I I have a young son; he's two and a half, and uh, and I feel like I absolutely see you know this sense that there's this real you know nurturing safe harbor with her, which is which is beautiful and and feels very appropriate, obviously. But that, you know, we're in the process now of the weaning and, uh, you know, I can see the contentiousness he has with me because I'm the one kind of creating this boundary or this sort of encouragement uh, to step away from that relationship to the mother and to come to a different relationship yes. to the mother, you know. And, and so I really see it kind of playing out as this uh, in this microcosm. But how I wonder as well, this is so much of the adolescent psychology it feels like of men you know, the classic image might be the the, the boy in the basement, you know, yes. 30 yes. or 40 uh-huh. still playing video games and that kind of stuff. But it is a real challenge, I feel, a real problem. Um, but I wonder, you know, how might you speak to this now? Also, not to, you know, sort of denigrate the mother, because obviously she's doing her amazing role in the parenting. But what, what we're talking about, I think, psychologically, though, is something different. Yes. So I just love to differentiate, because sometimes, you know, I read feminist articles or others that say, Oh, this understanding says, you know, it's the mother's fault and it's her, her you know, she's doing something wrong. But it's actually, a, it's actually the lack of cultural initiation practices, I think, for now we're just speaking about boys in general. And I'd love for you to speak about that. Oh, yes. It's uh, even more widespread than that because historically, uh, one woman was not the, the mothering, the only mothering person for a kid. It was the extended family. Uh, so that weaning wasn't, so much of an issue of losing one relationship because you had everybody taking care of you. And uh, so you came back to mother maybe for breastfeeding and then somebody else took you off to the fields. Uh, so it was much more evenly distributed. You bring up a really great point there, actually, which I haven't quite uh, fully understood before, which is, or at least I would say it, as it seems to be a consequence of the nuclearization of family, that there's this psychological construct that develops uh, which you named as a, as a western thing uh typically where there is this need to you know quote break psychologically from the mother but that seems to not be the case with other cultures that have a much more distributed uh sense of parenting and function um, and i never quite heard it described that way actually as a as essentially an unintended consequence of the collapse of what i might call a village uh understanding is that we have this need for men to psychologically break from the mother Yes. Well, there's advantages to having your own nuclear family and you're living alone without the in-laws all around. So everybody likes that. It's kind of like everybody likes sugar, (laughs) but too much of it may not be very helpful. Uh, And some cultures are interesting because it's not the father who has a key role with the the son, the, the young boy. It's the mother's brother. It's the uncle who is the crucial figure, uh, which makes it a little easier uh, rather than the father. Because uh, then the father becomes like the sole authority, whereas here it's distributed between father and uncle. Oh, and those cultures too, the property passed through the uh, maternal line. So it was the mother's brother was crucial. I'm just reflecting on a dynamic as well, which is recently developed with my son, where literally, you know, the other day, uh, the mother and I, we were, we were embracing, you know, just a sort of morning, you know, hug. And he comes over and he's literally, you know, kind of pulls me away and is like, my mommy (laughs) and i really saw the sense of him he's like you know you know don't get too close she's mine 
And I was like, yes. wow, what do they call this? Like the oedipital complex or yes, Oedipus? Right. Yeah, uh-huh. exactly. And I really, I was like, wow, this is it right here, you know? And not that it's a problem in a sense, but it's like, yeah, how do we contend with these things? Uh, and and how, how are they make it, how does it make it hard to contend with them when we don't have the social structures that support, again, this like distributed uh, roles? Um, and it goes the other way too. Uh, young girls, like two, three-year-old girls, would gravitate towards the father and you know, say, go away, it's my father. <laughs> mm. uh, but that's probably, uh, actually, I'm not aware of anthropological studies, but I would guess it's from a nuclear family. Mm. You also mentioned in the book uh, a kind of a beautiful articulation as the, the father also plays a role as a trickster to the young child. You know, something like that where you said the, you know, they'll come home often. I mean, again, depending on the arrangement, but if the father's often absent because of, you know, working dynamics or whatever it is, they'll come home often and sort of be a bit more rowdy and, and sort of surprising with the child. And I, that's certainly the case for at least the current situation, you know, where I do come home after a day work and I get in there and, you know, the mother is very happy to be like, over to you. Exactly. <laughs> and that's right. And, uh, and there, you know, and, and I can kind of be this figure for him. And anyway, I just love for you to speak a little bit more about that as you, you spoke, you articulated the father as trickster. Uh, that's actually not true, not just in nuclear families, but tribal cultures where the father, uh, tends to be more bouncy and throw the kid up and down the baby, uh, which the mother doesn't do. Um, so it's much more physical and, uh, rough and tumble in sort of way and teasing, playing pranks, uh, which isn't so prominent with uh, Western fathers, the father role. Often uncles have that role. Turning once again to a few of the stories, one of the ones that really stood out for me was The King's Years, you know, which the tale of uh, tale of the king, and, you know, he's got a secret pair of, uh, it could be horse or donkey ears, depending on the story, um, and that it's this sort of secret shame, you know, that, uh, you know, he doesn't want to get out. And, not to give it away or go into the story, but this this quality of looking at the shame that men carry or the that the patriarch carries, you know, I was really curious to hear more about that. What do you understand to be this often secret shame that that uh, the patriarch does carry? Mm, uh, well, it's a problem for the patriarch because he's supposed to be like really admirable, heroic, and not have donkey ears or whatever kind of animal ears there are. Uh, but everybody has this secret or this animal part the, that makes us all equal uh, so that it's no shame to show it. And that's where the trickster uh, excels. I like a, uh, I forget, it's a Midwestern tribe, Native American tribe with the trickster uh, Wak Jung Kaga. And he always does something stupid and he says, oh, that's why I'm called Wak Jung Cha, Wak Jung. Uh, anyway, that W name, because it means uh, the foolish one. Uh, so he he just doesn't care about his donkey ears. It's just part of being him or being human, really. It feels like it's a it's a type of medicine then, right? That is necessary um, to one the function of maybe a let's just say a healthy psychological you know being, like the capacity to um, to be with or to integrate you know those places that carry shame, um, but then also as a sort of cultural function where like you say, that there's a, an, an intelligence um, to have this sort of alternate force that is actually opposing in a way to the ordered world of this is the way it is and on the rest. But there's a deeper wisdom there, and I'd love for you to speak a little to that. Oh, a great example of that would be the sacred clowns for the Zuni and the Pueblo Hopi. Uh, 
where they're basically trickster figures who do outrageous things at sacred ceremonies that would be, you know, normally you'd never think somebody would do that. And there was a, a great story about one of the uh, tricksters, sacred clowns, it's actually a socially sanctioned role, uh, this planned with his friends for his funeral. So when he died, uh, they had the usual funeral. And then all of a sudden, from the top of the ropes, some people threw his body down. Uh, that was all his arrangement to shock people and remind them, oh, let's, let's not take this stuff too seriously. Um, and one of the problems, I suppose, in a practical sense is like the American presidential system. The president is the head of state and head of government. Uh, so he shouldn't have imperfections or donkey ears. Uh, whereas like uh, uh, Britain has the prime minister and the monarch. So the monarch can be perfect or hide their donkey ears. And the prime minister can do all the other stuff. Mm. You know, that's really intriguing. I was just thinking of the role of, for example, in America, you know, the, the talk shows. Right, I'm thinking like oh, yes. like John Stewart or or yes. Stephen Colbert as the the sort of truth speakers in a way are trying to upend the you know sense of order and and the masks or the the hidden donkeyers of the the government. They're the uh, true uh, example of tricksters today. Uh, of course, be the the fools from previously. Uh, only they could speak truth to the king. And I guess it's uh they don't have many conservative humorists shows like that but it is uh, a, a the trickster's role to make fun of everybody including himself there's another story about the uh i think it was a monarch and uh, uh a devil or demon that he was transporting on his back if i can't remember the exact story right but also there was this question of that of the oh the king and the ghoul right that's the story and there's this discussion about acknowledging and integrating the shadow and I wonder, yeah, like what role do these stories play in being able to, you know, surface and, and to work with or to, yeah, to bring forth uh, a kind of skillfulness in shadow as opposed to, you know, acting it out unconsciously? Uh, yeah, because the hero is supposed to be good, right? Um, and so he constellates the shadow as the opposite. Uh, actually, a good example in the U.S. would be Barack Obama constellated the shadow, who the, the person who succeeded him. <laughs> He brought out all the darkness. Um, and so if you dissolve that duality, then there isn't such a problem. Uh, the, the shadow isn't so dangerous because it's just another another one in the group. That's really fascinating, actually. You know, I never heard it uh, understood that way because, you know, one might, one might say, you know, how could that possibly have happened? How could we go from, you know, one polarity that was so great, you know, according to who, who might be, you know, on that polar uh, side of the spectrum, but then all, all the way to the other polarity as this sort of confusing whiplash, right? But I think what you've just described is exactly that, that if one shines too brightly and sort of, you know, in, infallibly, uh, you know, good and perfect, then all of the other stuff, you know, that's not let in the room, in a sense, that sort of gets shunned, well, then comes back with a vengeance. And that seems to be, yeah, it seems to be like a much older intelligence that the, often the current construct of the culture that is, sees things so black and white, uh, doesn't see that it's actually generating its own sort of uh, the, the the force, the opposing force against it. Yes. And uh, a hilarious example of that were the black masses. They aren't the same connotation today. But in the medieval Europe, they would have uh, the reverse mass where somebody would ride backwards on a donkey dressed in a bishop's outfit and everybody would be making fun of the bishop and actually doing sacrilegious things, you know, burning shoes instead of incense. Uh, 
that's part of what's Mardi Gras uh, today. It's sort of the sacred clowns coming up, making fun of the sacred people. Mm. You know, I've often felt that this is also a way of explaining, for example, um, the current fascination with superheroes, but also the, for example, uh, Batman and the Joker, right? And how, you know, I've, I've reflected upon how Batman often represents, even though he's an antihero, he's still a hero, uh, but a, a kind of a sense of order, right? The, the desire to, to enact order. And yet at the same time, if order becomes too oppressive, then chaos is, is actually becomes a kind of medicine. And therefore, you know, we're in a time when, I think last year when the Joker came out, you know, it was one of the top movies of the year. And the people were people were kind of actually, you know, feeling a sense of affinity and uh, a kind of recognition of the necessity you know obviously it skews quite violent in the film but that wouldn't be off as the sort of sense of this need to kind of come to a different order that that has become constricted and suppressive and you know suffocating and that's the trickster's job um and you could say people were fascinated by the joker uh and the question would be was that the film or the american president (laughs) interesting you know i have heard uh trump as well being cast often as you know loki you know let loose uh in the in the halls of power and in some ways not playing by the rules right which is typical of those maybe who have been in politics you know for for much longer um and so in some ways kind of shaking up the establishment but on the other hand of course um you know often been characterized as a bit of a huckster that you know you can only sort of pretend to play president for so long before you know the machine starts actually falling apart and and you know the consequences which i feel perhaps the illusion was shattered, of course, with the march on Capitol Hill. It felt like where, you know, the the kind of ability to keep up this image of, of you know, all under control and he's really got it seemed to shatter into a million pieces. Um, and your mention of Loki is good because he's the, a re- he's another archetypal trickster. Uh, what's often forgotten is his positive role. Um, he's, a, he's associated with Satan as the teller of lies and stuff but in norse mythology he was the one who saved baldur from the end of the world because uh, he conspired to get baldur killed in the first place which meant he had to go to the underworld so when the end of the world came baldur could come back from the underworld to restore the world and loki did that he did a lot of other things too <laughs> yeah. thank you for that yeah good to recognize again that the the essential qualities the medicines uh that tricksters bring I would love for you to speak to the the progression that you name of boys often starting with this heroic ideal, moving into the feminine or, you know, developing the receptivity with the feminine, with the emotional realm. Um, and then there's something beyond. It's You have this equation, you know, masculine, feminine, then masculine again, or the deep masculine, which is what we've been talking a little of this trickster shaman archetype. Um, and I wonder, what is it, how is that mapped in how you've tracked historically uh, the you know as we look back and we see you know the current paradigm of a, a sort of patriarchal paradigm and I only use that term and you know, how you're using it in terms of a heroic paradigm but then we get to the great mother uh, cults and and the great mother cultures um, which I think a lot of people can they have a sense of that you know like those that do the research they're kind of like oh yeah we're coming out of the the great mother time was before that but I really like how you articulated this uh, that patriarchy in a sense or the heroic paradigm as a reaction to the great mother cults. Like, you know, and, and I would just love for you to speak a little bit more about that. Oh, uh, historically, there have been no confirmed cases of matriarchies. <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> like, 
what they talk about the great mother they can't find actual things like that historical uh there have been some cases like the iroquois and the iroquois federation the council of clan mothers had immense part immense power to decide war or veto war uh although the chiefs did a lot of other stuff um but they didn't run everything <clears throat> uh so that's kind of a probably a reaction against the patriarchy um denigrating the f- the feminine because uh, if you look back like originally they thought gobeki katalhurek in uh turkey is one of the oldest uh cities um they thought oh it's a matriarchy uh, oh no it was a egalitarian everybody had the same size house uh and they didn't have great mother figures <clears throat> they appear only after they have great patriarch figures well, again maybe to impose balance I'm curious then what was it if you know if you surmise even mythically right what would compel uh, uh, a movement towards patriarchal rule or or maybe we could say the hero patriarchal rule um, out of the mother cults like you know because when I wonder about it I might su- suggest that you know just like the psychological need to somewhat rebel or to to um, wrest power away from this all-powerful great mother figure that that could be seen as where the reactivity came from of, you know, men needing to assert power over a force that was ultimately, you know, at its deepest place would conjure a lot of fear, um, right? And I wonder, again, if you might wonder about that. Well, there's a psychological aspect, but the historical aspect is the um, patriarchy appeared when with agriculture when you now had stuff worth stealing. Because uh, hunter-gatherers, you, you have to carry everything so you don't have any big, of possessions uh and actually it's a common ethic in hunter-gatherer tribes even uh, surviving ones that they don't like collections people to have things that are special that other people don't have um, so there's a strong egalitarian uh ethic uh, one anthropologist even gave a beaded necklace to a woman who had really been helpful to her and when she came back a year later the necklace was gone but everybody had one bead mm. and that's kind of how it works there. But once you get something you can steal, like grain or cows or, or land, uh, then you have to protect that, right? Which is where the warrior comes in. And unfortunately, men are expendable as far as the survival of society, as long as they have you know mothers who continue to rear the children. <clears throat> so uh, men become the warriors. Mm-hmm. Although not always, because you know, they're clearly cases of women warriors, uh, historically. I also think that you, I, I believe you mentioned in the book, like you said, that if there was no historic cases of uh, matriarchal societies where women are, are sort of power over, um, but there are matrilineal societies, I think, as you mentioned. And, and I think this has also been verified in a lot of indigenous uh, guests that I've had on the show, where they actually describe what seems to be more of a matrilineal or at least... Yeah, yeah, a certain degree, a large degree of power actually held in the women and often the women elders that sort of give orientation, you know, to the chief uh, or to the to the warriors, but that there wouldn't be this kind of uh, hierarchical domination power that, you know, expressed. And that's also a distinction that, you know, I like to bring in too in these conversations around, you know, oftentimes when people use the term patriarchy currently, um, I draw upon the work of Rian Eisler, which I do believe you've also uh, either mentioned is, you know, the sense of domination culture versus a sort of men on top culture, which again, I feel is not refined enough often to, to really get at the heart of what we're talking about. 
if you think of a patriarch as the um, head warrior, uh, they do have to dominate the enemy, right? And then the problem is when they start dominating their own people. Rianne Eisler, uh, she was the one who worked on early Gospels, I think, right? Uh, uh, she just... did Chalice and the Blade, as well as okay, uh, Sacred yes. Pleasure, uh, and I think a number of others, around partnership societies, yeah. Um, yeah, as she pointed out, the early Christian church was egalitarian, and women were priests and bishops as much as men. Um, probably until Constantine came around and made it the state religion, uh, which had to be patriarchal because he was. Mm. Wow. Oh, and, but he was the one who uh, appointed the council that chose the established Bible books of the uh, New Testament Bible. Turning now to where you guide the reader in the book, Beyond the Hero, um, you know, I really appreciated, again, this this sort of look at history as well as, you know, present moment and, and the stories and bringing forth the stories to illuminate I mean, what might be useful in this moment. And so I'd love to hear a little bit about, you know, in the time since it was published, you know, what, what has been surprising to you or ways in which maybe people have reflected back at you this work uh, or where has it maybe not landed quite yet, you know, that you kind of wish it did. And I'd love to hear about that. One thing I thought was really funny was that Clinton was a trickster president and like a trickster, he had sex everywhere <laughs> and it offended the patriarch. Uh, you can't do that. <laughs> uh, and then unfortunately we get uh, a hero, Barack Obama, uh, who constellated the opposite, which would be uh, the shadow came back. Uh, a lot of uh, entrepreneurs though, uh, especially high-tech ones, start off as tricksters because they're innovative. Or oh, another aspect of trickster in mythology is that they're the ones who bring important inventions to humans, like language, fire, basic stuff we don't think about. Um, but then they leave. They don't take charge, uh, which is what happened with the high-tech companies. I mean, the original internet was pretty egalitarian. Anybody could say anything and exchange stuff. And now it's owned by several companies. Wow. That's really interesting. You know, I really love that uh, articulation. And I think of figures too, like, I don't know, Jeff Bezos or, or Elon Musk, you know, and, and certainly there is a quality of a trickster nature, it feels like with, you know, being able to create these platforms or I, Elon, especially, you know, he's sort of pumping out, uh, you know, interesting inventions or fantastical car designs and heading to the Mars and the rest. And so on the one hand, yeah, there's this sense of like, wow, there's a real kind of innovative spirit there. Um, and also, as you say, the seduction to, you know, some somewhat occupy positions of power that, again, aren't maybe as true to the to the medicine of the trickster. There is a slight difference. The trickster brings completely new things to humanity, like uh, language or fire, right? Uh, where a lot of human inventors or technology just kind of puts things together that already existed, uh, and also. Um, once you get really wealthy and powerful, you're kind of immune to the trickster attacks. Mm. Uh, so you're not thrown down or made fun of. And it's, that's why you never laugh, stop and laugh. Oh, that's why I'm called the foolish one. Mm. I'm just thinking of the king's ears as well. Again, this, yes, this, yes. This, that, that medicine. Um, as we've just related uh, a kind of cultural uh, lens with this, with this work, you know, I'm curious for individual men as well, especially, you know, what do you hope they're taking from these stories or how to approach, particularly, you know, mid and later life um, as, as their tasks of this time? Um, well, first of all, uh, it depends on the individual. This is folktales uh, show sort of like the 
most common route men need to take because you live in a patriarchal society and start off as heroes uh, trying to be patriarchs. But if you did the reverse, like if you're an artist or something and didn't follow the warrior, uh, then you need to deal with the warrior energy uh, and how to, how to come to terms with that. So it's, it's a basic Jungian principle that what you didn't develop in youth, you got to deal with after midlife. Uh, and it's similar for women that if you follow the power, the way of power, then you have to deal with the way of feelings and vulnerability somewhere at midlife. Mm. I also recall you spoke about the, the ability to hold paradox. And, uh, and I'd love for you to mention that as well. Oh, yeah, that's another trickster uh, <laughs> uh, forte. Because uh, Paradox inconsistency doesn't bother them, uh, but it's usually a creative paradox that produces something new. Because a lot of people, a lot of us, you know, have contradictory values or positions, but we just never notice them, <laughs> so it never bothers us, and nothing new comes out of it. Are there specific practices or group process and things that you recommend or you've seen, you know, that allow men in particular to to unearth or to to play with these energies in a tricksterish fashion? Oh, uh, I think definitely men's an ongoing men's group is really helpful, <clears throat> especially if it's uh, older men, <clears throat> middle and older men, or uh, or men who've kind of accomplished what they want to accomplish, and now what now what comes up? Uh, and also, men dealing with oh, what happened to everything I built? It just suddenly disappeared uh, because it's the companionship that's important, um, but also probably periodic um, doing something really quite different, you know, like a. I don't know, a weekend expedition somewhere. Mm. You know, I'm reminded of uh, the oft sort of cliche image too of the man of midlife that, um, you know, discovers that he hates his job and, and the life he built and, you know, kind of gets trades in everything for younger models and the rest. And, you know, in some one sense, it's easy to sort of denigrate, you know, that maneuver. And also it's uh, something to recognize. I think that, that that is a sort of spirit of wanting to come alive again. I mean, I'm even thinking of American Beauty, of course, the film, uh, the classic film that came out in 99, the, the character, you know, played by Kevin Spacey at the time, very much felt like that was the archetypal shift he was doing, you know, sort of doing a job he hated and under the thumb of his partner to suddenly he's lifting weights and smoking pot and sort of like, but he's finding, you know, a, a deeper place of authenticity. And so as much as that image often can be sort of skewed that way or seen as a kind of abdication of duty, for example, for men. I mean, I think there's some, the spirit of it though is this, yeah, desire to kind of break free of, of, of yeah, what has been repressed or hidden. Yes. Uh, and the Brother Lustig story is really great about that because you know, here comes this soldier lived an exemplary life and <laughs> basically learns to steal and lie from St. Peter himself. <laughs> I wonder, what has the journey been for you? I know you've, of course, went on to, I think, write a few other books as well. And and I wonder how has this thread, particularly you know, for, on masculinity and the shaman trickster, continued to evolve for you uh, since that time? Oh well, actually, dealing with uh, folk tales and fairy tales has been trickster work, kind of bringing up ancient stuff uh, and kind of um, bringing new things that were actually old that were forgotten, uh, and so I've just continued doing that and getting more serious at times. Like I'm working on stories now that talk about how we judge truth. And it turns out that they're pretty similar across the world, believe it or not. And that's not usually associated with a trickster. Well, maybe slightly in that, that would be sort of a prophetic function. Mm. Would you share any of that research so far? It sounds very intriguing. Um, 
Well, one is the, the muses. They're usually kind of ignored in Greek mythology because uh, they're just you know decorative. But what's interesting, I didn't realize that uh, according to mythology, they had contests just like the Olympic contests, but it was in the arts, like uh, the muses' arts, astronomy, tragedy, music, and they would pick the best one as the winner. And they essentially define different kinds of truth and how we have to judge them because the, the muses' contests occur every year with the Nobel Prizes and every year with uh, tenure decisions at universities. Mm. Uh, who's the best in the field? And you get the prize. And we assume that what you do was also the latest truth in that discipline. How have cultures wrestled with this ability to understand what truth is? And is it coming to some kind of objectivity? Or is there some other kind of relational truth that is sort of, I mean, maybe that and that's changed depending on the culture, probably. Um, I think the main issue is, is there one truth for everybody or are there many different kinds of truth? You know, like, uh, are humans the one and only summit of evolution or are there many different animals with different specialties equally evolved? Mm. Perhaps a fodder for a future conversation. Mm, yes. Well, that's the whole point of the tricksters, make people think, which is what you're doing. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> actors are tricksters. <laughs> Well, thank you for uh, calling me out, and uh, I'm uh, <laughs> grateful for our time today, Alan. Really appreciate our conversation. Well, thanks for doing all this work and making the podcast. It's really fascinating. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Mythic Masculine. If you enjoyed what you heard, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts and sharing this episode on your social media. Also, you're invited to join the Mythic Masculine Network a growing community of artists, activists, poets, parents, and lovers of mythology, ritual, and wonder. We're co-creating the emergence of a culture of belonging, oriented around tending the masculine soul. It's a beautiful, intimate platform, and I'd love to have you connected. Visit themythicmasculine.com network to learn more.